0: Ortholaser Orthopedic Laser Centers is proud to sponsor the Ortho Show podcast. Ortholaser Orthopedic Laser Centers is killing it right now. We have six centers open, with two more opening in the next eight weeks, with 10 more sites in the queue across the country. We're exclusively powered by the MLS M8 laser technology. Laser treatment is an awesome alternative to traditional cortisone shots and surgery for all of your acute and chronic orthopedic pain needs for your patients. To find out how you can supercharge your orthopedic practice and become a part of the OrthoLaser community, go to the OrthoLaser website at www.ortholaserwithaz.com. That's www.ortholaserwithaz.com. For medical media, this is The Ortho Show. Hello, world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of the Ortho Show podcast. We have another special guest. We've pivoted away from the clinical world to spend a little bit more time on the business side of orthopedics, and there's no one better than Will Barsoom to be able to talk about that with us. He's an orthopedic surgeon, still practicing despite his crazy, busy life. Uh, He is the president and chief transformation officer at Healthcare Performance Company, also known as HOPCO. HOPCO. He's the former CEO and president of the Cleveland Clinic uh, in Florida, a busy guy, an orthopedic surgeon extraordinaire. Thank you for coming on the show, Will. It's, it's fantastic.
1: Well, Scott, I'll tell you, it's a real honor and uh, and a pleasure to be with you. So thank you very much. That's awesome. So,
0: you know, I want to start because we have a little bit of shared history. You know, I'm, I was scrolling through your CV and, and then there I see you are you were an Frank fellow in 2000. That's pretty cool. So, so everybody knows. Uh, the New England Baptist O'Frank Fellowship is one of the premier joint fellowships in the country. It's one of the top orthopedic hospitals in the world for orthopedics specifically. I was a very proud resident of the Tufts program and spent almost two years of my life at the New England Baptist. And uh, and that fellowship in particular is just kick ass. I mean, you learn orthopedics and joints from some of the best in the world. You're operating every single day when you're done you know, you've just seen revisions, primaries. And so tell us about your experience, because I know for me, it was very pivotal in my, in my training.
1: No, you're you're absolutely right, Scott. You know, it was one of the only fellowships in the country where you spend five days a week in the operating room. And it's interesting when I was looking for fellowships and deciding where I would go. I was a resident at the Cleveland Clinic and I met with uh, 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 Les Borden, who is really one of the fathers of joint replacement here in the United States. And uh, I was talking to him about some of my research interests and my academic interests. And he said, well, let me just stop you. When you go to fellowship, you're going to learn how to be the very best surgeon you can possibly be. And there's no better place to do that than New England Baptist. Uh, And actually, he had done his fellowship there with uh, Dr. O'Frank himself. Uh, So, yeah, so it was a real honor. I ended up uh, getting that spot and spent an incredible year there with Ben Bierbaum, with Dave Manningly, Jim Bono, uh, Joe McCarthy, just some of the greatest names in in hip and knee replacement in the country. And uh, it, it was fantastic.
0: Yeah, no, it, I mean, the, the, all those names, you're bringing a big smile back to my face. I mean, Breakfast with Dr. Beerbaum was like the most tense moment for for the <laughs> fellows in residence you were hoping to get out of there live, And then Rod Turner, who's just an absolute, you know, rock star. Rod's greatest contribution to orthopedics was the ability to get royalties. So, the, you know, the O. Frank Turner prosthesis, I think, was the very first prosthesis in America to have royalties. So Rod got that. And you're right, Dave Mattingly was just an absolute superstar. And Joe McCarthy we would scope hips together, Joe McCarthy yeah. and I. This was in 19, you know, uh, what was it, 92 or 93. It was like yeah. the only thing we could do was get the scope into the hip, and we were just like high-fiving each other. Like, you know, compared to what they're doing now, it's so impressive, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, but these guys are, are – all of them really were true pioneers, continue to be pioneers in, in orthopedic surgery. It's funny, that when you bring up breakfast with uh, Ben Bierbaum, I remember vividly when you were scrubbed across the table from him, He had those ice blue eyes. And if you did something that he didn't love, he just, he never yelled, never raised his voice, but he would just look up and stare at you.
0: Yeah, you were cut cut in half with laser eyes. You're absolutely, absolutely right. So, so you, so you do your O'Fraig Fellowship and then, you know, where's your Cleveland Clinic tattoo? You have to have one. I mean, literally you're like, you you spend most of your adult life there, right? Yeah, you Uh, would
1: think, I mean, after 25 years, uh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs>
0: uh, you've done, I mean, you started off in research and then there was resident education and you always stayed clinical. And we want to talk about that a little bit as to how, you know, you've remained clinical even now. And then you just sort of worked your way up and then it really started moving into sort of administrative roles. So I think that part of your story is really fascinating and we'd love to hear it. Like, What was your draw to sort of not necessarily just doing the clinical, but the, the administrative stuff that sort of gets you eventually to, to become a CEO?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of, it's interesting. Um, I've always believed that great organizations invest in their talent. And uh, I was very lucky in that I'd had a little bit of a track record at the Cleveland Clinic having done my residency there. Uh, So I knew a lot of the folks there. And in addition to that, uh, when I was in high school, I played a little lacrosse and one of our part-time coaches was the chief of surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. No, so when only- I was looking, yeah, so when I was looking to come back to Cleveland, that's who I called and he said, let, let me see what I can do about getting you back here. So um, I don't know if you've read the, the book Outliers, but but one of the three things that they talk about uh, in terms of of kind of meeting your goals and, and, and doing something that makes you, uh, that you're excited about, uh, to some degree is luck and being kind of in the right place at the right time and and having trained there and then also having had. This connection with the chief of surgery to be able to come back there uh, all worked out very well for me. And then ultimately, after I started working and I was clinically active and getting very bu- busy very quickly, he actually identified me as a potential future leader of the organization and said, We should set you up with our leadership course for the division of surgery. So I took that course. And uh, anytime at the Cleveland Clinic, if you finished one of their leadership courses, you would kind of get assigned into a project. Uh, And that project would hopefully lead to more and more and more. So, you know, between the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgery and the AOA, which had their relationship with the Kellogg School of Business, I took courses there. Through the AOA, I continued to take courses with the Cleveland Clinic, um, some things at Harvard Business School and Harvard School of Public Health. And eventually that really allowed me to continue to grow uh, administratively while I continued to stay very busy as a clinical and academic orthopedic surgeon.
0: So that's fascinating. So the the you know you look at the Cleveland Clinic, which is one of the most successful healthcare organizations in the world, and you guys they not you guys are not part anymore, but still they have spread all over the world. And and I find it fascinating that they grow from within and they point to and identify leaders early in the process and then foster that as well. So that's really a, a very interesting story. So talk about leadership. What. It, you know obviously you're a leader i mean you've been a ceo and now you're moving over here as well what what are some of the things of uh, within leadership what are the qualities as a good leader helps you to build your team and, and move forwards
1: yeah so i think it's probably three things and and it's interesting when you talk about leadership i i think about my some of my colleagues now uh at hopco and and each one of them embodies the things i'm going to talk about it really is very impressive the first I think is, and people talk about this a lot, is the ability to see around corners. Uh, and that's really a, a, a true differentiator from a manager to a leader, right? Not everybody that's a super manager uh, can be a great leader, but those that can kind of look around the corner and try to understand what's coming and prepare the team for what's coming. Uh, th- that's a big step forward. You know, David Jakovsky, the, the founder and CEO of Hopco is one of those people. I mean, 15 years ago, the guy had this idea of taking full global risk in musculoskeletal health. And nobody was thinking about that. No one around the country. I mean, to be able to think that that was actually going to be the right thing to do, I think is a great example of that. I think one of the, the second thing that I would talk about, which you just touched on, is the ability to build teams, right? Great leaders, recognize that it's not just them that make their organizations successful. They build great teams. They empower those teams to be decision makers, and then they celebrate those teams. So I think it's the combination of building, empowering, and celebrating that 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 allows teams to become cohesive and to trust one another and kind of build that psychological safety so that folks can make decisions and, and sometimes be wrong. And that's okay, because sometimes you are gonna be wrong. But as long as your decision was made based on what you believed was in the best interest of the organization, then that's okay. Uh, and then the third thing is decisiveness. I mean, lots of people can whiffle waffle over a decision, and that's the reality. Uh, but ultimately, a leader has to be decisive. And when you are decisive, Uh, People immediately earn some level of confidence in you because you've made a decision, you're supporting that decision, and you're going to live by that decision. And I think that is a very, very strong attribute to a leader. So those three things, I think, are really the key to making an organization successful through strong leadership.
0: Seeing around quarters, building teams. And being de- decisive, all great, great, great points. And the de- decisiveness also helps you in the operating room too, right? That's the difference between a, a good and a great surgeon being able to move, make decisions and move forward. So that's terrific. So, all right, so let's talk before we get to Hopco. We're, we'll spend plenty of time on Hopco, I promise. But uh, I love the story about how, all right, so you, you're up at the Cleveland Clinic. You're doing all these things that you're. they, they decide you're the guy. And they decide to send you down to Florida. Tell us what Florida was doing at the time you got
1: there and then where it was when you were done. Yeah. So that's a great question. So Florida, Cleveland Clinic, Florida, I think, has always been a great organization. Uh, You know, it started uh, over 30 years ago, but it started very small and it started with a small group of really committed caregivers to this community didn't have a hospital to work in it was very very difficult to get privileges to work in some of the hospitals here locally because as you can imagine you know the community wasn't necessarily excited about a big named organization like the Cleveland Clinic coming down and setting up shop eventually they ended up buying a small hospital on the beach it was old it was kind of you know Uh, run down. But but Florida is a certificate of need state. So it was a real challenge. It took years to get the state to allow us to build a hospital. And finally, in around 2001, they built this beautiful hospital. It was in partnership with Tenant Healthcare. uh, And about seven years later, they bought out Tenant Healthcare and then owned the hospital uh, on their own. And really, since then, it's been been a very interesting story. So when I came uh, six years ago, Uh, It was a single 155-bed hospital, about 3,000 full-time caregivers. Uh, And and we had an opportunity at that point to really determine what the fate of Cleveland Clinic Florida would be. Were we going to continue to be an outstanding community hospital with a few areas that really stood out? So colorectal surgery and general surgery were areas that really stood out for being outstanding on an international basis. But most of what we did down here was really just very, very good community medicine. Um, And my feeling at that point when I came down here, which, by the way, initially was on an interim basis to just try to kind of steady the ship, was to create a strategy to differentiate the Cleveland Clinic here in Florida. And my view was that people come to the Cleveland Clinic for differentiated tertiary and quaternary level care. They're they're coming here to have the very best of the best uh, with the best quality doctors and the best quality facilities with the best quality nurses, giving them the very highest level of care in the traditional delivery of medicine. So I said, if we want to differentiate ourselves, it's not enough to be a great community hospital. We have to get into these other areas. So we brought down our strategy office from Cleveland. We spent about six months creating a a, a true strategy to differentiate ourselves in this market and then spent the next four years being laser focused on delivering on that strategy. So when I left, we were at that point the highest ranked hospital in South Florida, which was terrific. We had added four more hospitals as well as an incredible freestanding basic science research center. Uh, our academic work was a, was absolutely uh, blowing up in terms of the amount of high-quality research that we were doing, uh, and from a financial perspective, we went from losing about twenty million dollars a year the year I arrived to last year making about one hundred and twenty million dollars. So we went from one hundred and fifty-five bed hospital to nearly eleven hundred beds uh, and about twelve thousand full-time caregivers. So it really was a great story, and and I have to tell you, um, it really came down to that team, to bringing the team together, to getting buy-in from all the physician leaders, the nursing leaders, the administrative leaders saying, this is the direction we're going to go in because it was a major shift from what had been happening for the prior 25 years. But I think in hindsight, it was the right thing to do and it will continue to be the right thing to do.
0: Outstanding. So it's, it's a, the next chapter in your life. And you're going to make an influence and change on something that's so important, which is this quality uh, and the overall cost of medicine. So you join Hopco. So not all of our listeners know what Hopco is. So why don't you go through that for us a little bit and sort of give your mission statement of what you're really
1: trying to accomplish there. Sure. So the goal for Hopco is really quite simple. It's it, It's the only vertically integrated musculoskeletal delivery system in the United States that focuses on quality and cost through the creation of population health uh groups to take care of musculoskeletal health for a community so what does that mean it sounds fancy it sounds complicated it's really not that complicated the what we'll do is we'll actually work with payers to take full global risk on musculoskeletal health in a community and when i talk about full global risk on musculoskeletal health remember. That musculoskeletal care is one of the most highly, uh, um, one of the highest expense items for CMS or for private insurers. So, if you look at the seventy-seven or seventy-eight thousand ICD-10 codes that CMS recognizes, over a, th- a third of them are around musculoskeletal health. So, to be able to carve that out and say we will own this, we'll take full ownership of this in the community that we serve, for the patients that we're serving, that's a big step forward, right? Most people won't do that. So that's step one. Step two is then to align caregivers around well-proven clinical care pathways that they actually participate in creating. So we don't say here's the hopka way of doing things. We say this is how we do things in this community or that community. Let's look at what's best for South Florida or let, let's look at what's best for Flagstaff or for Detroit. Uh, and, and and let's customize this so that it's peer reviewed and it's supported by the literature. And that will become the way we treat patients with nuanced knee pain or rotator cuff tendinitis. This is how we'll test them. This is how we'll treat them. This is the order in which things will go. And we're going to hold you uh, uh, responsible for making sure that you really do follow these pathways that you had a hand in creating. We'll then also partner with hospitals around their hospital service lines so that if somebody does need to be admitted, they're getting the very highest quality care in the best possible uh, atmosphere or environment uh, with the lowest risk of complications. So the work that we do ultimately ends up driving about a 31% increase in market share to the hospitals that we work, that we work with within two years, increases their contribution margin uh, by a factor of, of essentially two, uh, again, within a couple years of working together, uh, but overall reduces the overall cost of care for musculoskeletal health in that community Uh, by by eight figures for every 100,000 lives. So it's really quite significant in terms of being able to measurably improve the outcomes that patients have, and at the same time, decrease the overall cost of care in taking care of them. So patients get healthier. When they do need surgery, they get better outcomes. Uh, If they don't need surgery, they get access to great care to keep them healthy and to keep their musculoskeletal system functioning well.
0: All right. So that's outstanding. So what's interesting with Hopco from my research is that you have touch points in a lot of different places. You've talked about inpatient care. We're all recognizing at this point that more and more is getting pushed to the outpatient setting. So you're going to have to partner with hospitals. You're going to wind up having to partner with with orthopedic groups or maybe large orthopedic groups. But I think that you guys look at the local community in which the, in which you're you're coming in and then try to develop a program that works best for them. So talk a little bit about that, because I think that's pretty
1: fascinating. Yeah, you're right on there. I mean, one of the things that I was most impressed with with HOPCO is its customizability, right? So entering a community, you may find that that in one community, you have a, a highly consolidated group of surgeons and hospitals that are already functioning at a very high level and are just looking for some guidance in terms of how and when do we start transitioning joint replacements to the outpatient setting? You know, what should an ASC look like that is doing hip and knee replacements? We can come in, we can partner with those organizations, we can help create that infrastructure, we can bring our skill set to doing that, and then layer on all the software solutions that we have to also help uh, measure the outcomes that we're getting and, 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 again, give real feedback. On the other hand, you might enter a community which is uh, not consolidated at all, lots of one z two Z orthopedic practices, uh, lots of different hospital systems all kind of competing for the same thing and in those communities, what we want to try to do is find the very best providers from the orthopedic surgery side and the very best uh, hospital uh, managers on the inpatient side and bring those groups together, ultimately creating a clinically integrated network that is open to hospital uh, uh, hospital utilization as well as Uh, Physicians, surgeons, non operative uh, healthcare providers involved in the musculoskeletal space to align everybody, including the patient, the payer, the hospital, the orthopedic surgeon. Everybody's aligned around ensuring that the patients get the very best care for the very lowest cost. And by the way, Scott, one of the most interesting things about this is if you look at it across the range of those stakeholders, everybody benefits, right? The patient ends up getting higher quality care for a lower cost. And here in the United States today, over 40% of our patients have high deductible insurance plans. So if you can bring down their out-of-pocket cost, that's a very real win for them. On the hospital side, they get the benefit of having the highest ranked hospitals and the the very best quality, again, for the lowest cost. Because keep in mind that they may be taking risk on patients coming back to the ED, patients coming back for a reoperation and they're not potentially getting paid for those things. So if we can decrease those incidents from occurring, that's a benefit for them. On the physician side, the real benefit is thats is that they're getting more patients that are demanding higher quality, lower cost care. And they're the doctor in the community that is developing that reputation. So they get more of the patients from that. And then finally, the the payer, who really is acting to a large degree As the convener of of money to pay for all of this care, what they want is to be able to provide their clients, their patients, with higher quality care for a lower cost. Then what they can do then is create plans that are priced at a lower premium rate. And when they can price them at a lower rate, they get more patients and their patients get higher care. So everybody really wins. Nobody loses in this scenario.
0: Yeah, that's that's terrific. We're going to save one big question for you at the end before I get there, because I know that uh, you have some thoughts on, on Medicare for All, universal health care, and I, I think the audience would love to hear that. But before we get there, one of the other things that we see a lot of right now, and actually it's what I find fascinating is that the messaging is very similar, but I'm trying to to dissect at this point what the differences are. So for example, there's a lot of private equity groups right now that are running around and and buying large orthopedic groups uh, and talking the same things. You know we're you know bundled payments have done really well in the joint replacement world. We need a bundled payment episode of care for rotator cough or for ACL surgery or ACLs or or knee pain Michael Suck wants to own the knee. you know all of these things are sort of in play, and they talk the same message we're gonna we're gonna provide these pathways that are going to provide high quality care. Uh, but at, for the orthopedic surgeon, there's the, the the financial energy there to be able to capitalize, get six times EBITDA on your investment, et cetera. So, so if you could spend a few minutes on, on the difference, difference between a private equity purchase of a group and what Hopka wants to
1: accomplish. Sure. So so first of all, let me just say, I mean, I I think that um, I invest in private equity funds. Some of my best friends run private equity funds, um, and, and I think private equity... Brings a lot of uh, very valuable know-how to running businesses like a business, which is an important thing in healthcare today. Uh, the delivery of healthcare really should be a science, not an art, and the running of your business ought to be a science, not an art. So I think that that private equity can can bring a lot of discipline to the way we run our practices, which is a which is a great thing. But keep something in mind, right? How does private equity make money? They make money by taking something and increasing its value dramatically. Well, how do you increase value? Either by growing it or cutting out cost. Um, one of those two things. Um, that can be great if, in fact, the goal is really to grow it and to grow it in a meaningful way, and if you as the doctor continues to be in charge of what that looks like. Some groups let you do that. Some groups don't let you do that. Some groups look for increasing value through cutting cost. Some look at it through growth. What HOPCO clearly wants to do is deliver on the value equation. And we are confident that 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 value equation delivery is very doable in the communities that we're in. In fact, we have very clear metrics that show that it's extremely successful because we've done it before. You may know, I mean we're we're either the 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 number one or number two uh, group in the country that that convenes the largest number of bundles. You touched on bundles before, Uh, And bundles clearly have some applicability, but I would tell you, we're not huge fans of bundles because in bundles, most orthopedic surgeons will take out and hospitals and physical therapists and you'll take out all of your costs in the first year or two. And then there's really nothing left. It's not sustainable. Whereas what we want to do is something sustainable that continues to reward orthopedic surgeons, hospitals, you know, the members of our clinic, our clinically integrated network continuously for the delivery of that high value care. So that is a, a major difference. We're not looking to flip a practice in three years or in four years or to, or to grow a group of practices into 10 or 20 or 30 and flip them as a bundle, kind of like mortgages, right? I mean, you know, you know, banks sell their mortgages, they bundle them all together and they sell them to somebody else and they bundle a bunch together and they sell them to somebody else. You know, that doesn't really make your life with your mortgage any better. Our job and our desire is to empower physicians to help drive this chain, this change in a much more meaningful way. So that's, I would tell you, the the major difference. Our goal isn't to go out and buy a bunch of practices. Our goal is to empower those practices to be more effective and to allow physicians to continue to remain appropriately independent.
0: Fantastic. Well said, well described, and, and actually easy to understand so this is an election year we're just about done uh, i find it pretty amazing that we really have not had a lot of discussion about healthcare you know there's a lot of discussion about a lot of stuff but healthcare really has not come to the forefront as much as it usually does for a presidential election and and one of the things that i've heard you talk about and I, and i thought it was a great conversation was the difference between medicare for all and universal healthcare so give us a couple minutes about a description as to what you think your personal thoughts are in the direction in which
1: our country should go. Sure. So, so the first thing I'll tell you, Scott, I like competition in healthcare. I think competition drives better value, improved quality and lower cost. Right. It, it works in just about everything we do. If you could drive a Mercedes Benz for the same cost that you could drive a Fiat, everybody would drive a Mercedes Benz. Right. I mean, that's the reality. But if you look at a Mercedes Benz and a BMW, the two of them are constantly trying to deliver a higher value solution to their markets. Right. Maybe one starts putting Apple CarPlay in their car. Another one puts, you know, automatic lane assist in their car. They're trying to get you a higher quality product for that same price as the competitor. So I'm a big believer in that idea around competition. That's number one. Number two, I'm also a believer that in this country, truly one of the wealthiest countries in the United in the in the world, every single person here ought to have access to high quality care that doesn't bankrupt them. That's a personal belief that I have. Um, I, I just think that it's that that it should be a staple of life if you live in the United States. So that's the second comment. The third comment I would make is is that universal. Healthcare coverage or single payer is not the same thing as everybody having access to healthcare. And that's an important differentiator. So, what do I mean by that? Medicare for all essentially takes competition out of the insurance business. And I think competition is good for the insurance business, right? Just like what I explained before around stakeholder alignment, there's a very real benefit to payers that work with Hopco that benefit is that they can now provide a higher quality product to their customers for a lower cost. So if you have a single payer, that ability kind of goes away because everyone's getting the same thing. So you want the payers to to compete with one another, just as you want the providers to compete with one another. Otherwise innovation becomes stagnant and we don't want that to happen. So it's very, very different, again, to say everybody is entitled to care. How that gets paid for doesn't have to be a single way. So, I, again, I like the idea of, of, of folks being able to compete for the business of the patient on the payer side. And I also like the idea of hospitals and ASCs and doctors and groups like Hopco all competing to be able to provide the patient with the very highest value outcome. So that that to me is the is the real difference between single payer and universal health universal healthcare. and many times people don't understand that you can provide universal care with multiple payers.
0: Outstanding. So other than us losing our Fiat sponsorship for the podcast, that was an outstanding answer. No, I'm just kidding. No, that was that was so well put because I think so many people get lost in what the differences are there. So, you know, really thank you so much uh, well, this was fantastic. This is exactly what we love here at The Ortho Show. We bring in amazing orthopedic surgeons who get to tell their story. You are clearly an innovator in healthcare quality. We love that on this show. We can't thank you enough for
1: being on today. Well, it was a, it was a real pleasure. And, and uh, just to make sure you don't le- lose that sponsorship, I love Fiats.
0: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> fantastic. Fantastic. Thank
1: you for having me.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. So, I also want to thank our sponsor, Ortho Laser Orthopeak Laser Centers. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.